This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Hello and welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I'm Mo Samson Folk, and today, after waiting a while, because we were just trying to find time to talk about the things that this guy knows all about, and he'll be back to talk draft stuff, of course, but right now we're talking about Siakam, shot creation league-wide, a guy who knows the game intimately, knows it very well, Robel, who is the the head and the only creator over at SubMe and Coach on YouTube, a great YouTube channel that I've learned a lot from. And he also does draft analysis, mostly for Raptors Republic, can dabble in other things as well. Rebel, how you doing, man? I'm good. How are you? Uh, thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing quite well, as we were talking about beforehand, just trying to transition from the Raptors, you know, postseason to the offseason. Obviously, you have so much league st- league-wide stuff you can do with your YouTube channel. And for me, Louis Atzman and I will keep doing our newsletter and uh, yeah, I'm sure both of us will continue to put out good content. But I brought you here for one major thing, and then that will kind of bleed into the other things that are trending league-wide, let's say. And so let's talk about the limitations of using a post-up as your go-to offensive option and how that pertains to Pascal Siakam. Less efficiency, less free throws, easier to game plan. Why is it so important that the Raptors don't idealize Siakam as a post-up star? Um, because he's not Joel Embiid, like simply as that. So um, a post-up is two points every single time. And it's so easy to get away with fouls there. And the bigger player never has the advantage. So with Siakam, who uses his... Um, his speed and length, he's not a, a what's called, he's not a, a bruiser. And when people can get away with fouling, pushing you um, around, it's just not an area where he can efficiently operate. So yeah, that's what I think about the post-up, like him posting up. I just don't think it's a it's an ideal play type that he should have like over 50% of his um, usage there. Okay. So let's talk about, I'll I'll be the devil's advocate, although I typically do tend to agree with your opinions of Siakam. I'll play devil's advocate. What about when we see like the two-man game? What if I said, I expect him to get better there, and I really like the two-man game he operates with Fred, and what if I told you he can draw doubles? Now, he doesn't have to grow into that, but what do you think about if that does happen? Do, is Can they look at him to be a playmaker there, or does he not have the chops for that either? I think um, he can only be a playmaker if he draws the double, but as we've seen in the Celtics series, he did kind of regress in uh, making reads. He was doing the, the jump thing while he, he jumps up and then passes, and he cut that out in the regular season, but he seemed to have picked that habit up again, so... I don't really trust him making like Gasol type of reads right now in the post. 
like maybe in the high post you can um you can give him some usage there, but in the low post I just don't really see um him being like getting an automatic two points off drawing a double every single time. I think I agree with that. So if we're talking about Siakam, especially the low post, I like that you bring that up. The high post I think is more viable to him because he can switch the face up. But I'm gonna lean on your expertise here. When you're looking at a guy like Siakam, and it's clear that, as you say, the way that he's being utilized, that's how a bruiser would be utilized. But clearly, for his position, his greatest attribute, outside of a handle that has left him, and a, you know, a decent shooting stroke that left him in the playoffs as well, is his quickness and his length. So what is the way to utilize Siakam? A lot of people talk about using him in the pick and roll, or dribble handoffs, or even as a screener. What do you like to see from him as far as play type? Um, I've been, when I've been tweeting about this, I've been kind of mostly focused, um, with him on the ball, like what he can do on the ball since we want him to be like the main creator. Right. But if he doesn't really have it, like in the Celtic series, we should also focus on how he can be effective off the ball. Like how Nick Nurse can utilize him, um, to gain an advantage without him having to actually create it. So I was talking to a couple people that are smarter than me and know more about the game. And they're just saying, like, you need to get Siakam downhill. Like, someone needs to pass it to him when he's already moving. Because once he's already, um, once he's already, what's it called? Once he's already sped up and he's dribbling, that's how, that's, makes him so much harder to guard than him being stationary and dribbling. Like, he, he, he moves so much faster when he's dribbling when, like, while running full speed. So, I like to, uh, see him get more like curls and stuff like that. I'm not the greatest with sets, but I want him to have like a full head of steam right off the catch. So kind of using um, Nick Nurse just has to be more creative with them off the ball and how to get him easier looks from the perimeter down instead of just um, getting a post up and just everyone just spacing out. So, yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. One of the most surprising parts of this postseason, I think, was that they didn't transition Siakam into more creative sets after he was a top five in usage as far as isolations this year. And his efficiency in the regular season was around LeBron James, Giannis Antetokounmpo level. But, he, you know, that's Pascal Siakam going from a guy who was an energy big off the bench to, you know, the pseudo second option, third option on a championship team to now you're asking him to be one of the heaviest ISO guys in the league. That's a huge jump. And then that they didn't kind of acclimate him into the playoffs with any sets. Every once in a while, they'd run a flex action for him to get him like a low post look, which depending on how the screen is set in the middle of the floor can be good, can be bad, but very little in the way of getting him on ball. No dribble handoffs to turn the corner, which is the lifeblood of so many players. I mean, look at how the Nuggets work. Like It's not like Jamal Murray is just a straight up pick and roll guy. There's a lot of off ball stuff too. And so... I was really surprised at how they utilize Siakam. And maybe a little bit, we can transition this into OG and Siakam. Were you surprised at how OG was getting phased out of games just because of what he has to offer, I think, sometimes? I know he finished like five of six, I think, on pull-up threes in the playoffs. And obviously, that's really low sample. But just giving it to him every once in a while just to see what happens. Were you kind of disappointed how they schemed for both OG and Siakam as far as getting them their shots? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm disappointed in Nick Nurse's offensive uh, capabilities. I thought he had more. Uh, I know everyone loves Nick Nurse, but 
he still has room to grow in this offensive uh, playbook. Like, the Raptors were in a top 10 offense, but I think we could have been a top 10 offense. Like, I think we had the skill, but I just didn't think we had the, the right sets. Like, I think a lot of the... The, a lot of the offense was read and react, but it wasn't a lot of pick and rolls. It wasn't a lot of handoffs. And that's what everyone in the NBA is using because it's so easy to do and it's it creates so many advantages. But we weren't doing that. So, like, with OG specifically, though, I think it's it kind of, like, it's ha- half in hand because OG also, like, phases himself out of games. Like, he, like, disappears and stretches, and that has been a problem for him, with him for a long time. So I think that's um, a thing that is also his fault, but it's also Nurse's fault because he just forgets about him and stuff like that. Like, like he showed that he can create advantages off the dribble when he really had the chance, but it's not like we ran anything for him. We just kind of uh, pushed him to the corner and just... And all those pull-up threes were basically, like, end of the shot clock, he has to go create something, right? So it wasn't anything like that. Nurse doesn't hasn't really empowered Siakam and OG the right way yet, and that's what this that that was the most disappointing thing about the season and the series. I'm interested. You brought up the read and react system that the Raptors run in, and that they don't run a ton of pick and roll, and that's one of my stipulations of the offense this year, and just about the in-house talent is. The Raptors, which is different than most teams, they run the pick and roll as a playmaking play. Typically, the pick and roll is to get an advantageous look for a volume scoring guard or a volume scoring wing. And then if you're lucky, an all-star level guard or wing. But the Raptors, they started using Kyle Lowry in that sense in the Celtics series. But for most of the season, it was typically to get Gasol in the short roll, Gasol popping, or Ibaka doing one of those two things and letting the big men do it. It was more so a play type for the big men in the Raptors' offense. What do you think about how that shapes up going into next year that the Raptors don't use the pick and roll the same way that the rest of the league does? Do you think that that's something they need to start looking into? Is that it's an opportunity for the guard to score, not for the big man? Yeah, they should look at look into it ASAP. Like, uh, it's a copycat league. I don't think... Um what's it called, copying what the whole league does is a bad thing, especially if it's if it's shown that the running a lot of plays for your bigs doesn't really work. Like, it doesn't really help you because if they get played off the floor, you're going to have a lot of stagnant moments, right? Especially in game seven. I think we gave up, like, four, four runs when we just had zero points. Like, it was just multiple times where we just couldn't get a bucket. And, yeah, we just... I just don't like empowering bigs to be this... Um, main facilitators and scorers as much as I like the wings and guards to do it because that's that's just not their job. Like um that's why I like Fred Van Vliet a lot because he kind of um breaks away from that. Like he doesn't pass as much to the to Ibaka or like the popper. Like he tries to get his own shot. And that's why I'm I'm a big fan of his because he's he's showing us what like what Lowry has to be able to do as well. Like just as a use that pick and roll to score by yourself. And I think like we need to do that more. We need, uh, especially Pascal, he should be using the pick and roll as well. Every In a small sample, I feel like um, his field goal percentage when he was um, slashing 
trying to get to the rim of the pick and roll was like amazing because he didn't have to create that own space. He he just took advantage of the little space that he was given after the screen. So I think we need a we need to transition more into what the league is having right now. Okay, and so here's the next question. I'm glad you brought up Van Vliet because Van Vliet does pass less in those situations, but he also kind of gets pigeonholed to if his defender doesn't chase, if his defender drops, Van Vliet has anywhere from the three-point line to about five, six feet beyond it where he can pull up, and that's great, and that's something he worked on in those runs. You could see he's pulling up from way downtown. That's awesome. His finishing needs work, his ability to draw contact and bounce off of it, how defenders track his steps going to the rim, something he needs to pay attention to, his pacing in the middle of the floor. And lastly, that mid-range jumper. So I think that's the most difficult thing with Fred is he either needs to get to the rim and throw up a prayer sometimes, or he needs to shoot the three. He very sparingly uses a mid-range jumper, which if he wants to be a pick-and-roll attacker, he needs to be able to counter the defenses. What do you think about that progression for him going forward? Yeah, I think the in-between game is what he, like, that's, like, the next step for him to be a 20-point-per-game scorer. He needs that floater. He needs that uh, pull-up. He needs to be more, um, I like his patience in the pick-and-roll to a fault. Like, sometimes it gets a little bit predictable, and he kind of um, allows the defense to get back into the play. So he doesn't need to kind of switch it up with with a change of pace and stuff like that. But, yeah, the pull-up three is there. The the finishing is like he needs to be more aware of how, like who he is like sometimes like he needs to stop like trying to do contested layups against like big rim protectors because it just yeah it's just not gonna happen for him but yeah like just the self awareness and like adding a little floater adding a little mid range pull up uh, changing pace putting a defender in jail all of that he needs like that in between game and then he'll be like a fully realized pick and roll scorer. That's what I think, because a, a point guard with a live dribble in the middle of the defense should give any defense fits. It should it should give them heart attacks. And that's something that Kyle is really good at if we look at comparing those two, which maybe isn't totally fair. But where Fred would kind of snake the pick and roll and shoot back out for a reset, which is not always advantageous, is even if he does get a big guy on him, Kyle might sit in the middle of the floor and wait for the defense or offense to turn around and wait for an ad like an advantage to show up, which has always been with Kyle Lowry, that read and react aspect of his game has always been so high level. And so let's talk about OG and Siakam then, because everybody knows what Kyle Lowry is or should at this point. He is a future Hall of Famer, ideally. Fred needs to work on that mid-range game. But as far as having a pull-up three at the high level that he does, that's big time. He's a big part of the Raptors going forward. Hopefully, OG and Siakam, if they're hitting their ceiling, what do you see for both players? Um, Pascal, I think he could e- easily average like 26 points per game, 27. And I, well, I'm a little bit lower on OG's um, scoring output and his prime. I think there's just like he's still a long, long way. And even though he did show flashes of um, being able to score, I just think um, it wasn't as much as I'd like to. Like, it was a lot of, um, like, every time he'll, like, drive to the pay and finish, it's, like, a celebration. Like, 
I like OG, but we can't just do that. There's so many players that are so, so much more um, advanced, and I wouldn't even say they'll be ending up uh, as 20-point scorers. So him just, like, attacking the paint two times and finishing doesn't do a lot for me. But the handle improvement is nice. I th- I still think he's a little bit um, too stiff, so he does need to work on that. Uh, but I do see him as, like, around 15 points to, like, maybe, yeah, 15, 16 points per game is, I think, where he uh, maxes out as with more three-point volume and uh, attack and closeouts. Yeah, so as far as him hitting his ceiling or 15, 16 points per game, he either has to develop something that commands more possessions, that he's taking more shots and more consistently, or he needs to start creeping up towards like 43, 44% from three so that it's just sheer efficiency is getting him to, to that level. And so for next year, nobody knows what happens with Norm Powell. But, and I know you've been an advocate of his trade value for some time, but as far as the pin downs that they ran for Norm all year, and he was, I think, fantastic running off of pin downs. Do you want to see some of that transferred to OG just to try and work in more reps of him going downhill? I would like that. I'm not sure um, we'd see the same success because Norm is like, well, I do uh, talk bad about Norm a lot. Norm is like super fast off the catch. And when he's slashing to the rims, not a lot of players, like he like pops when he like um, gets the ball and goes downhill. And OG doesn't really uh, pop the same way or have that burst. So it's not going to be the same uh, success rate at all. But it is nice to, it will kind of break him out of his shell when you're running plays specifically for him. So you won't see the fading out of games um, as much as you saw last year or like in his rookie year even. I agree with that as far as if you want to grow OG, you give him the possessions. But if you want the offense to run as as good as possible, you still keep it with Norm. Because I agree with you, Norm's pop is palpable. He has major bounce off of one foot, off of two feet. And he, he's gotten way better at predicting and kind of fending off the help side defense. OG... Jumping off of one foot is a nightmare. It's like a haunted house. You never know really what's going to pop out of his body. A knee could come out one way, an elbow the other. He could full on karate kick a dude. And so when he jumps with two feet, OG is like the most powerful being on the planet when he gets to load up and he's so strong. But yeah, as far as asking him to be changeable and dynamic in like a dribble handoff or a pin down, probably not there yet. So I think I agree with that mostly. And finally, one last question regarding Raptors stuff. What do you think the Celtics and Raptors series looks like if the Raptors have a mid-range scorer? And do you think someone, I know we talked about it to some degree about Van Vliet, and you can answer this. Do you think someone currently on the roster will develop that? And just as an aside, I talked to Joe Wolfon from The Score. He wrote a huge, long piece about floaters in the NBA and he thought that Norm was the most logical guy to work in the mid-range for the Raptors going forward. What do you think about that? Uh, I disagree. Uh, yeah, I heavily disagree. I think this uh, Norm's greatest strength is just his slashing ability. I don't see him as a, a pick-and-roll scorer. I don't think he has the playmaking chops at all or, like, the patience. I think he just catches people off surprise and just super bursty. Just He's a he's an off-the-catch wing. That's what he is. I don't think um, he's going to develop that floater or anything. But I, 
out of everyone, I only see really Van Vliet developing that. Um, you want Pascal to have more pick and roll set uh, reps and, you know, um, him figure that in, in intermediate game out, but it's not going to happen next year. I just don't, you know, it's, it's hard to develop that. And I just don't think he's like close to being there yet. So I don't see it, but yeah, I only see Van Vliet really um, succeeding and having that in intermediate role. I mean, intermediate game. Okay. And so when we're talking about Siakam, when you look at his game, the way that it's, you know, how he functions on the court, his shot type, and how he's kind of built his jumper, it is more of a set shot. If you're talking about pick and roll on the move, getting mid-range jumpers, is it more advantageous for Pascal to work on a, like a face-up mid-range, or is it more advantageous for him to have a, let's say, 9 feet to 14 feet floater or runner that he can pop in because he does have good touch. It wasn't as good this year as maybe last year. And the statistics bear that out a little bit, but mm -hmm. what, which do you think is more advantageous for him? Uh, the floater. I think he could develop a floater runner. I think he has elite touch actually, uh, yeah. especially last year. Like he, a lot of his, um, like the reason he cooked Draymond was literally straight off touch. Like a lot, like I was watching the, um, some highlights and like some plays and literally like a lot of those shots, like Draymond was literally right there, but he still managed to bank it off off the glass and stuff like that. Like, I really think it's such as elite, especially when he's moving. So I think he could develop that, uh, that runner, that floater. Uh, but like you said, it is kind of, he does kind of have a hitch in his jumper. So I don't see him like, like probing or like snaking the pick roll with a, like a pull up mid range. I just don't see that happening. But as, a, as a face up scorer, I definitely see him um, developing that, and especially when he like improves with um, like with with his jab steps and stuff like that, and adds more counters to his game. I definitely see him using that mid range in the in the face up as a, like a main weapon, even. Yeah, when we're talking about him cooking Draymond and his elite touch, the amount it seems almost infinite. The amount of shoulder slots he has to finish from, he can go anywhere from like his elbow drop down at his hip all the way to fully extended above his head and anywhere in that 180 degree arc his arm can sit and he can still finish with like having the ball palmed it's it's pretty crazy his yeah elite touch i think is the best way to put it that's uh yeah a good way and if he gets that if he gets that handle to the point where he can get downhill around a screen and get to 14 feet and farther in i mean it could be it could be a really fun floater game but one last thing to talk about, who are the players league-wide whose games fit the NBA best as lead ball handlers, guards, wings, whomever, and let's try to exclude guys like Luca, who obviously fit in very well. Who are guys who are kind of under the radar, but their games slide in really nicely? Um, not really an under-radar guy, but I think people are just underestimate how good he really is on offense because of his defense and that's Trey Young. Like he's one mm. of my favorite players. Um the way yeah, like honestly he would have averaged maybe like twelve assists if he had competent uh bigs on his team. Like he was making Jabari Parker look like a, a rotation guy at one point in the beginning of the series. Uh, as like a five. And it was just crazy to see like his his playmaking was amazing. Um he really like he puts the defense until he has three guys um, focused on him every single time, and he's still able to make plays for others. 
Uh, the three-point shooting for Atlanta was really bad. I think they're one of the worst shooting teams um, in the season. I think, like, top three worst. So, um, like, imagine the amount of kickouts he did just for them to miss it. Like, it's just a lot of – he's just an amazing creator. I also think uh, Jason Tatum took a huge leap as a pick-and-roll scorer and as a passer. Um, it was a little bit overstated how good of a passer he was in the Raptors series because he was making a lot of – easy corner reads and you know we give up the corner three but I think like his development as a pick and roll initiator is has been amazing as well uh some other guys I can't really think of any other guys off the top right now but I think those two have really grown and they're young so they're only going to get better yeah well as far as the Jason Tatum thing the corner reads definitely they impressed me but as you said if you're playing Toronto you should be looking to make the corner reads, and especially in the series against the Celtics. Toronto early on didn't squeeze in, and we saw Tatum march to the line 12, 14 times a game. Then the Raptors squeezed in. Tatum made that adjustment and started looking to the corner as he should. But what made me the most impressed probably with Tatum was his his ability to pass from one side of the floor to the other. Like He was getting doubled above the break, getting trapped to the sideline, and his ability to spray to the other spot above the break, like those were nice skip passes. And that's and he has those little hook-in passes when he's going down at the lane. Those were nice, but as far as just making the proper reads, it's good that he does that. But as you said, maybe a little bit overstated. As far as Trey Young, what do you think is most impressive about his game? Because when he came into the league, everybody said he's a shooter. But more than anything else, he's been one of the league's best drivers as far as his ability to draw free throws, his ability to cause chaos in the middle of the floor for defenses. So shooting, playmaking, driving. What is his best part of his game right now? Um, I think it's floater, actually. Like his his um his free throw rate is so high. I didn't expect it to be that high, especially with um how skinny he is and stuff like that. But like, he's just, like, he has everything in his back. Like, that's why he's getting fouled so much because the defense never knows what he's going to do every time he uh, comes comes uh, comes across that screen, right? So, but his floater is, like, I think he has maybe... I think he has the best floater in the NBA. I think I could say that. Like, as worst top three. Like, that, that thing is just... He can literally do it from anywhere, from the free throw line um, extended... That's it's just gonna go up and no one can guard it. His touch is amazing and yeah, he's just he's a great player, man. Would Jokic, Young, who's the third floater guy in there? Who's uh, the Brandon Clark? Oh my god. And Rashawn Holmes. I love both those guys. Especially Rashawn, because he like shoots it from the hip. He's got yeah. an absolute nuts floater game. But yeah, Brandon Clark, man, he can throw a floater up there. As far as if we're talking about guys who maybe were underrated. Before the playoffs, I don't think you would have found anybody in the league who would have said that Jamal Murray is better than Pascal Siakam. And I'm not saying that's the case now, but I'm saying you would have a lot more people after these playoffs saying Jamal Murray is a superior player to Pascal Siakam. And as far as Donovan Mitchell, you wouldn't have that many people outside of Utah saying that either. It seemed like Pascal had leapfrogged those guys. Yeah. What does it say about the state of the league that you can make the case for both now and how both of those guys went off. Is that the pick and roll? Is What are you seeing that made these guys go completely berserk? Um, is the fact that any shot they take, 
you can accept and like it's not like it's the fact that they they have a really um they have a really low chance of getting absolutely shut down because they just have so much and they're just great shot makers from the perimeter and stuff like that and when i said in another past uh, i said in another podcast when siakam and Giannis struggle they get the most slanted because when they struggle it's like they're not jump shooters so you can't make the excuse saying oh he just missed shots like Kawhi went four for 17 one game and no one even really said anything because they just knew he just missed his mid-range shots that he always makes it's like it's not it's not that serious it wasn't like he was getting clamped or something like that but Siakam and Giannis they just they literally look like they're trying to like run through a wall and it's just not working and it just looks so ugly so that's the difference between um jump shooters and shot makers versus um like slashers and like guys that live at the rim so what do you think the future is for slashers in the nba and do you think teams will be more conscious about building around them or do you think people just gobble up talent where they can um i think yeah like the first option as a slasher is just it's just not ideal at all like Giannis is like top three best players in the league and he He's sh- he's gotten shut down a couple times now, right? Like you can't make an argument saying that, um, like, what you're gonna find a slasher that's better than Giannis? No, you're not, right? So it's like, as a first option, you want your guy to have that uh, that shot creation from the perimeter. I think it's like essential, even. And when Siakam can do that, the only reason we pushed it to seven is because Lowry could. So. Lowry was our our um, shot creator from the perimeter. So was Van Vliet. So that's why we were still in the game because those guys took on that role and asserted themselves more. But yeah, I think it's just very important. I think um, I think it should be value. I think shot uh, making and shot creation should be valued more uh, when you're looking at draft prospects, especially if you want uh, to swing in the lower first round or something like that. But yeah, I think. Like, defenses are getting so good now. It's just, especially in the playoffs, you're not going to shake a guy every single possession. You're not going to catch someone with misdirection every single possession. These guys are all focused. They're all locked in. You're going to have to make some tough shots. And those are going to jump shots. Like, no matter how high you jump or something like that, there's still a chance of a good uh, shot maker to make it. So it's the most unguardable thing, especially if you can create space. I think that's a really astute point you bring up about Giannis and how that's a maximalized slasher. Who else are you going to find that's better? So maybe instead of looking at Giannis, you look at that archetype and say, is this the archetype you win with? How do we build going forward? And so like, that's a good point. But as far as guys who are shot creators, are shot makers that haven't popped yet, who do you think is getting ready to pop in the league? Who do you think is going to be the next wave of shot creators that maybe we didn't expect? Hmm. Um, I would say Murray and Mitchell, but they already showed us today. I think, uh, I mean, Devin Booker's one of the best at it already, but he, like in the playoffs, I feel like he would just have a great playoff series. Like I think his game is built for the playoffs and he would just get a lot of national attention. I know he did when he went 8-0 and in the bubble, but even more so around the world. Think Devin Booker is next. Um, Beal, you know Beal too. Like I think if Beal's on a winning situation, we'd give him a lot more respect as well. Only guy I kind of want to since the only 
the only problem with this logic of valuing shot making a lot someone made a great point about this it's like Zach Levine could also be the like people might think yeah like you know Zach Levine could do this like he can do what all these other guys are doing I mean like he could but the the trade back I mean the trade off is just too big like his you don't really want him to make a lot of decisions uh, on the ball and that's why the Chicago Bulls are so bad because he's like the primary initiator and yeah like it's good to have an amazing shot maker but if they can't make even like simple reads or if they just settle a lot then you're putting yourself you're putting your team at like a you're giving your like you're capping your ceiling of how far your team can go so yeah so it's you can't just that logic isn't always like 100% true so there's also some guys that might look the part but don't actually fit that bill so but a majority of them do it's just the the main point is the the margin of error is really like low like these guys have to be elite elite they can't just be above average or else you're going to get like an Andrew Wiggins as your main option okay you brought up two really interesting things there is the one that you brought up Booker and Beal who i think after watching a lot of their film this year were both vastly underrated as playmakers and then you brought up Levine who cannot make decisions on the level that Beal and especially Booker, especially Booker, his playmaking has been really, really impressive. He can't get to that level. Do you think it's easier to kind of coax a guy into being a shot creator and you teach those skills? Or do you think it's easier to take a guy who can get his own shot and try and coax him into shot or not shot making, playmaking and stuff like that? And maybe more more defense because guys like Mitchell came in with defensive pedigree Jamal Murray is known for being a decent defender in the league. I know Lewis Sassman said he was near all-NBA level. I know Jackson Frank likes his defense a lot, too. What do you think about that? Um, it's kind of hard because with shot makers, it's hard for them to see, like, a lot of... Um, hard to see them into a facilitating role because they can, realistically, in their head, they can make any shot, right, across the floor. So it's really hard for them to be like man, this is not a good shot right now. I need to pass this off. Like, you know what I'm saying? So um, it's really hard to do that. Like, we can, we're going to kind of have this problem with Anthony Edwards, who is a prospect in this draft, who is an amazing shot maker, but he does like to settle a lot because he can make any shot on the floor. And if a team puts him as, like, a primary initiator, be like, okay, we're going to fix, we're going to teach him how to be an amazing playmaker, it could go wrong because he might win you enough games to where you're going to get, like, the eighth pick. And just not become a good playmaker because he doesn't really have the personnel around him that he respects, right? And that's what's happening with Zach Levine. He wins them slightly enough games for them to uh, always pick seven instead of top three. So you compare him with, like, a, a, a real point guard, right? So, like, it's just you're putting your team in kind of, like, the no-man's land if if you're trying to teach a guy amazing shot creator how to play make and then he doesn't figure it out okay one last question do you think it's important for these guys to see the playoffs early in their career so that they can understand that you actually do need to adjust that you can't just be shot maker like a guy like paul george who comes into the league and he started doing the shot maker thing in the playoffs bouncing off of other players kind of 
seeing the vacuum of space where shot making was needed and filling it for the Pacers, but then stepping up to be the guy and noticing that he also had to be a playmaker as well. A lot of the shot makers early on in their career kind of lounge away on lottery teams and then they don't ever play that next level of basketball. So they don't see that playmaking is very necessary, that there you always need to have a counter not only for you to get your shot, but a counter for you to create for the others as well. Do you think there's a collinearity there? Do you think that feeds into it at all? Um, yeah, I think I think it's really important for um, guys to see that early. Like, you know, playoff experience is always going to get you better. But it's okay to disagree, by the way. I <laughs> I don't have to be right on this one. I don't know. I don't. I don't, I don't just completely like see that point, but I'm just trying to figure like having my head as like where I could agree. But yeah, I don't know. Um, but I do think like just seeing that early is like important. But I don't think it sh- it teaches guys like me, man, I have to be like a better facilitator. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Just uh, just positing, seeing, <laughs> throwing it out there, seeing what sticks. But uh, do you have any parting shots? As it looks like the Nuggets are about. 111.97 with 48 seconds left. Going to go to Game 7 with the Clippers. Do you have any parting shots on things happening in the NBA? Um, I hope I hope the Nuggets win. Just because, you know, Jamal Murray's Canadian. I think um, he has to be better as a... He has to be more assertive. I think that's his biggest thing. Like, there's a lot of shots he gives up. Or, like, he passes up, I mean. But I think that's the next step for him. I think he has the potential to be an all-star guard. But it's going to be tough because there's still De'Aaron Fox. There's still John Morant. Steph Curry is going to be back. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be hard, right? So we're going to see a lot of pseudo all-stars. And it's going to be exciting which one of those guys take, like, a huge leap. So, Fox is my favorite, man. I love his game. He is just sonic out on the floor. He's so much fun to watch. Yeah, it sucks that he's in Sacramento, though. But, yeah, let's hope, let's, let's hope he can figure that out. Yeah. I I would want to. He's one of the guys I would love to build around. I think it'd be so much fun to watch him for a super long time. But Ravel, do you have any parting shots? Any plugs you'd like to make before we get out of here? Yeah, um, I have a YouTube channel called Sub Me and Coach. It, I make videos about NBA players, NBA draft prospects, and NBA. Uh, I mean, high school players that are gonna, you know, uh, go into college, I guess. And yeah, I think you guys will like like that. Um, Please go subscribe. I'm trying to make you know a career out of this, and you know I really appreciate you having me on this podcast. Yeah, well, yeah, that's no problem, Rebel. And listener, I uh, I happily co-sign the YouTube channel. I've seen quite a few of Rebel's videos. Always super well researched. He's articulate in the way that he expresses his points. And depending on how deeply you know basketball, you could learn lots and lots and lots from his videos. I've learned things as well. So. Rebel, thank you very much for coming on, man. I appreciate it, man. All right. And listener, that's it for me. That's it for you. That's it for Rebel. But whether you're getting into this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day and goodbye.